You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 9th of May 2021 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Tyler Brulé. Positive steps here in Switzerland as people rush back to restaurant terraces and the cinemas. Plus, Greece and parts of Austria and Italy are taken off the high-risk destination list, at least for some. My studio guest today, Ben Zog and Christoph Munger, will take a moment to dust off their suitcases and also tell us where they might want to be going this summer. Also, Ben, what's uh, caught your eye in the papers this morning? Among other stories, there was an interview in this week's Die Zeit, a German newspaper, with the leader of the French party Rassemblement National, Marine Le Pen. And throughout the interview, there was so much disdain between the interviewer and the interviewee. Everyone's struggling with the idea of a right-wing future French president, possibly. We'll unpack that a little bit later. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will bring us, bring us his view from London uh, as we head to Tokyo. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson. I'll be talking about cars made of wood and why one of Tokyo's most iconic buildings is under threat. More from Fiona a bit later, plus we'll head to Copenhagen to find out what's flying off the bookshelves. It's the 9th of May 2021, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a very, very sunny Zurich. I think we're going to have the hottest day of the year so far, which I'm very, very happy to report on. I'm also happy to say that uh, Benno Zog is here with us this morning. You, of course, heard him uh, in the intro uh, to the program. Uh, Benno is with the Security Studies Program at ETH. He is also our security correspondent. Guten Morgen. Very good morning to you, Tyler. How are you today, sir? I'm very well. When I cycled here across town, I passed by people doing morning yoga at the lakeside, doing brunch just next to them. It is a wonderful day and it's it's a pleasure to be here. Good. Well, there's uh, much to get through, uh, of course, uh, across the program. I'm also happy to say that uh, Christoph Munger is here as well. He looks after the foreign desk at the Tagus Anzeiger newspaper, one of the newspapers of record in this country. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, you've caught the sun uh, much more so than Benno, I have to say, dear listeners. Uh, it's, uh, I understand there was a soccer match or something and, yes. and, a, la- and a lack of Nivea sun cream. Maybe. <laughs> exactly. My son had to play yesterday and I forgot, of course. To, to put the cream on, on my head and uh, it, it took about 80 minutes to, to play and uh, the game and so uh, I'm a little burnt, yeah. Anyway, well listen, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's looking good on you this morning. I'm also happy to say that uh, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, uh, is in, I believe he's in London, I, I, I know he's in the UK for sure, uh, but uh, Andrew, wherever you are, uh, a very good morning to you. Yes, I, I join you from uh, actually quite a sunny London as well. I, we don't, I don't think we're going to get those uh, temperatures here, but it's, uh, it's going to be a nice day here as well. Andrew, uh, maybe we should just start uh, because uh, I think both of our guests here uh, in Zurich want to, of course, uh, get the latest and certainly uh, your take on the uh, elections, of course, that we've seen uh, across the UK. Uh, maybe a little bit of a, at least a, a mini analysis for a Sunday morning, uh, your take on it uh, in, in terms of what's unfolded. 
Well, it, it was a real hodgepodge of elections going on this week. So you had uh, local authorities, you had mayors in many cities up for election, but not every city that has a mayor. You had the, the Scottish elections, uh, and you also had the, the vote for the Senate, the, the Welsh Parliament, as it were, as well. So what's really, really interesting is to see that actually Wales has remained with uh, with Labour. It's 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 finally balanced. Thirty seats out of uh, the sixty that are available went to Labour. Scotland, the SNP have done even better than before. Not quite getting the majority they needed, but they did win one extra seat than in 2016. In the local elections, some twelve local authorities have gone to the Tories in this crucial by-election, which was seen as a real test for whether Keir Starmer had any cut-through, a very, very traditional Labour seat has gone to the Conservatives. So London, by the way, has remained with Sadiq Khan. So when you take a snapshot, it's a good day for the Tories, without a doubt. And on a national level, you wonder whether Labour would ever be able to break through. An interesting fact here, you have to look back to 1979 was when Margaret Thatcher won for the Tories in 1979. Since 1979 to today, only one person for Labour has ever won a general election, and that's Tony Blair. They have never, ever found a candidate to rally around who appeals both to party and public. So you had Jeremy Corbyn appeal to many of the the grassroots uh, voters in Labour, a disaster on, on a national stage. You now have Keir Starmer, who appeals to the cosmopolitan liberal core of, of Labour um, voters and supporters, but has absolutely failed to connect to working class voters. So, again, an interesting thing this morning, a poll saying that when you look at voting intentions according to income, people on lower incomes are more likely to vote Tory and people on higher incomes are more likely to vote Labour. So this is completely destroyed the old consensus about what these two parties stood for. And whether it's true or not, Boris Johnson has very, very successfully painted himself as the people's prime minister. And while we've all talked about the corruption and allegations and stories about you know, wallpaper, largesse going on in Downing Street, it had no cut through. In the end, people like what he's done with the vaccines, seem to still uh, be voting along Brexit lines and have given him a, a kind of a, a resounding uh, thumbs up. I just want to turn to our guests here uh, in, in Zurich. And Andrew, thank you for the very comprehensive uh, and analysis there. Uh, Benno, because of any, any thoughts or reflections uh, as, as you look across to, to the UK, and maybe, Benno, I'll start with you. Because, of course, you know, we've, it's, it's remarkable to see last year where everyone was pointing at the failings. And then just this remarkable turnaround, of course, with uh, Mr. Johnson uh, and, and his ministers at the helm, of being able to roll out this vaccine at just the most remarkable rate and the bounce that has been received, you know, really in the span of about yeah, two, two and a half months. Yes, indeed. I still very vividly remember when when we all called Boris Johnson a clown um, and then he became prime minister and then he became a bit of a clown again. And there was the failure at the beginning of the pandemic. And now he's riding on this high. But I guess from a Swiss perspective as well, in a way, one is looking to Scotland and looking at how um, this this nation will Will it seek independence? Will it find it very soon? Um, how will the EU relate to that? Because Swiss-EU relations are very much in the papers these days for us. So that's certainly very interesting to watch out for. And Christoph, uh, especially, and you were just nodding on the point about, of course, uh, Scotland, uh, you know, at least one a- faction of Scotland, of course, seeking independence. Um, and, and of course, um, yeah, how this could, of course, play out. 
Yeah, I mean the the the, the victory, Boris Johnson's victory in the in the northern part of England is is has been really stunning, really stunning, and uh, it, it just showed it goes so quickly. Two months ago, uh, nothing worked with all these vaccine programs, and now he's the big hero regarding those vaccines. But at the same time, I see uh, quite a big problem arising in Scotland, and uh, th there uh, we, we see a combination of of the Brexit policy of Johnson and the pandemic and the independence movement of, of the Scottish people. So uh, I don't know whether the UK will stick together. Mm. Let's um, maybe just pick up on a, a point there about uh, about speed. Uh, Andrew, uh, you've, you've penned a piece and I don't want to uh, give it away for our readers, uh, certainly for the, the upcoming uh, June issue, uh, but I know we'll be talking to, to Fiona a little bit later about the Olympics, but you're reflecting on the Olympics, but maybe I think there's a conversation that we've been having uh, back and forth all week, which is just the pace uh, that things are suddenly moving. And it's incredible to think that we were, you know, standing in this position, you know, only two weeks ago uh, and and really wondering you know when when we were going to see some type of momentum but now this you know, this pace when you look at it, really across the Atlantic uh, to the United States how fast things are moving and then also a number of changes that we've seen in terms of lifting of measures uh, in uh, cer certainly um, in in Europe as well well the confidence returning is 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 rapid again tied to that vaccination thing a personal thing i was meant to have my second jab uh, in four weeks time they messaged me on friday by text and they said if you can come on saturday we'll give you your second vaccination on saturday i was it was uh, my local gp this time but they had it was a factory that you were in and out with i would think in about six minutes and having your vaccination your papers checked in done out and there was a queue down the road of people being done that is bringing confidence back in, in leaps and bounds because the numbers just have not gone up here. So we, we have these very good peg numbers. We went for lunch yesterday in the centre of London. They've, they've, in Soho, they've, they've taken over all of the streets for outside tables. You have to remember that yesterday was cold, uh, the threat of rain, blustery. It was rammed from every angle you looked. People were outdoors having an amazing time. The city is rebounding at a pace that I think is quite extraordinary. And what that means, I think, is for many of people who've been sitting on the sidelines, poo-pooing the return to the office, you know, dilly-dallying about getting back to work, I think that is going to happen quicker than people imagined. Of course, you, you still see all these companies saying there'll never be a return to normality. I, 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 I doubt it in many ways. One other tiny thing, I, I like going to the theatre. Many people I spoke to said, look, even if they give the green light for theatre to open, it will take until October to get the big productions back into the theatres. Productions were given the, the, the clue that they could open in June. All the posters up all over London. Everything is going to open on that first day. People are, are primed and ready to go. Andrew, and also there was, uh, you know, I'm just looking at reports this morning, that the Brit Awards are going ahead with a full audience of up to 4,000 people over uh, over the coming week. Uh, no masks, no social distancing. I mean, obviously, there'll be all of the essential measures going into it, which again, I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? The knock-on that, that that type of story has uh, globally when you think about the confidence or let's say the restored confidence that people want to have in, in Britain and, and, and certainly the UK economy. Yes, and, and, and there's a tiny thing here. We, we've never had this encouragement to wear masks on all occasions. So it's been uh, it's been demanded when you go into a store, for example, or as you walk to your table at a restaurant, but not not on the street. And actually, yesterday when I was walking around, I, I was really struck by 
how few masks you saw in the entire day. People were so relaxed around each other. And yes, people were socially distanced on their tables outside, but you could see the bonhomie, that, 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 that hugging. So supposedly next week they're going to say, you can now hug your friends in the UK, but be careful. Uh, let me tell you, that's already gone way past that date. You know, people are, were, were tactile, friendly. There was maybe a few glasses of wine pushing it on. But I don't know. People have just have, have taken notice of the numbers and respond and made their behavior fit what's actually going on. So, yeah, I think there's there is a real air of like it, it could be an amazing summer. Uh, I want to open up, gentlemen, because we were, of course, uh, at, at the top of the program talk, talking a little bit about uh, dusting off suitcases and where the world could go. And do, any just reflections, because we, we should say um, and, and disclose you have a bit of a vested interest in Spain. Were you disappointed because everyone was was watching this announcement this week in the UK? As as to of course what what will happen uh, mid month uh, what what places will come off the quarantine list and I, I guess Andrew maybe you do have a place in Tristan da Cunha that we don't know about or you might have a little cottage on South Georgia Island you might have a sheep station on the Falkland Islands so of course we had all of these territories lifted Portugal um, managed to squeeze through uh, and then you had. I mean, places like Singapore and, and, and New Zealand and Australia, where we know it's, it's more than a little complex to get, well, not to get to, but certainly to get into. Well, this first list of places that the UK government said you could go to, it was like somebody in the Foreign Office had been kind of given a map and been asked to choose the most unlikely places that anyone would ever want to go on holiday to. So it was like, it was, it was, I think people were like scratching their heads with thinking, can I remember where the South Sandwich Islands are? And how on earth would I get there? Does EasyJet have a flight? I think it's pretty <laughs> unlikely. So uh, tourism isn't going to boom back. I couldn't find our Carlotta Rebello on Friday afternoon at one point. I did ask because she already gone to Portugal. But it's really funny how these lists control people's you know, conversations because I spoke to somebody yesterday, said, oh my God, I was trying to get Portugal tickets and they're, they're already triple in price. And again, it also brings you down to being you know, everywhere. One is like such a genius now about knowing all the data about the, the virus, but now they're doing the same for travel. So before the, the list was announced, people were assuring me, oh yes, definitely the Balearics and definitely uh, the Canary Islands will be on the list. They're going to separate that from mainland Spain. As you say, I'm quite keen to get back to the Balearics, but it seems not. But here's the promise. They've said 10 days time, they will reveal another list of places that will be uh, open for travel. And then that will be enacted on a week later. So oh, the hope is, and certainly my hope is that, you know, that Spain and Italy come back. But then the stories this morning that they still have got the, a shambolic system of getting people back into the country and it's taking up to 10 hours, potentially the summer, to get through the queue. So you, uh, you have to kind of uh, place your bets a little bit, but I'm hopeful. So, Benno, do you wonder if there's going to be some type of leveling out? Do you think we're going to see a, a, a tourism minister summit? Because this is, you know, we, we can sort of laugh about, uh, of course, restrictions going up and down and this patchwork that exists. But also we look at the summer season and the importance of tourism to the total European economy uh, as well. And a little bit like vaccine passports and things. It doesn't. And of course, this will be part of it as well. It doesn't seem very joined up. And I wonder if there needs to be a moment of reckoning, not even over the coming weeks, but even days 
days where people say, look, we have to get this together, especially when you look at the pace that, that the U.S. opens. And you don't want the U.S. or, or travelers from anywhere in the world really just saying, I'm, I'm only going to stay domestic and not cross borders. Unfortunately, these steps to coordinate uh, measures and travel regimes, for example, are usually very slow if they ever materialize. So I'm not awfully hopeful for that. It's still every nation for themselves. Um, but we mustn't forget this factor indeed, because we're now talking particularly about travel within Europe, within Schengen, the easiest bit, or, or the Brits within the remnants of the empire, I guess. Um, but the issue is, for example, to currently hardly any Schengen visa are issued to third, third countries. If you live in Australia and want to visit your newly born grandchild in Switzerland or France and so on, you don't get a visa. And that's hardly talked about. And it's actually something that needs to change. And for that, we need coordination, as you indicate, Tyler. Um, so it's not even necessarily just tourism that matters, but it doesn't just matter for the economy, whether people can travel to the soul as well, to families, whether they can actually sustain some kind of a family life. So I would actually like to see some meeting in Brussels or elsewhere between ministers of justice, of tourism um, and uh, foreign ministers and so on. But currently, hardly anyone is debating that. Everyone is very focused on travel destinations within Europe. That's a start, I guess. Christoph, do you think that uh, the government in Bern is, is also paying attention to this? Because, of course, we've, we've seen this very high-profile campaign on one side uh, with Roger Federer and, and, and Robert uh, De Niro, which has been popping up on screens everywhere. So, yes, you know, Switzerland, uh, of course, you know, is like, like many other countries. They're, they're trying to prime people uh, to get back on planes uh, to come back. But do you see any type of joined-up conversation uh, is, is going to happen uh, cross borders? I mean, and of course, there are the neighbours here. I mean, whether it's Italy or France, etc., which, uh, it, yeah, it seems, seems if you choose the right border crossing, you can get across. But uh, but beyond that? I, I, I don't see any cooperation cross-border uh, so far. Of, even I mean, Germany is much more strict than Switzerland. Uh, but still, of course, tourism is a very important industry in Switzerland. And so there will be high pressure on, on the government to, to open and to to animate uh, uh, for, for foreigners to, to come back to Switzerland, but it, it will take time. And we also have to recognize it, it's, it's not over yet. Uh, I mean, we have the, the horrible news from India. In Africa, nothing goes on. Uh, I mean, a pandemic is a global problem. So as far as we have such large parts uh, of, of the world uh, where the virus is still there and the pandemic very strong and no vaccines, so that the problem will We'll, 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 be, we'll stay there. Even if we have now some optimism, we have good weather, we have people going out even here in Zurich, but it's not over yet. Uh, we have the newspapers uh, open uh, in front of us. Uh, Benny was really sort of almost sort of wrestling uh, with his, I don't know, I, I can't see his, if it's Dietzide or what you have in front of you. Uh, but uh, you, you, know, you teased us a little bit earlier, of course, you know, Andrew was reflecting on the, the elections across the UK um, over the, the past few days, or at least the results coming in uh, as well. Uh, but you were talking obviously about um, what, what turned out to be a rather spicy uh, interview uh, with Madame Le Pen. I was struggling with the site indeed. It is a poster-sized newspaper, newspaper and it's and uh, the radio studio table is too tiny for that. Hardly. But, this is like an aircraft carrier that you're standing up. But anyway. The site is larger than an aircraft carrier, apparently. There was this really interesting interview in this week's Die Zeit, uh, German newspaper, 
um, center, center left, I guess, um, with Marine Le Pen, the head of the French party Rassemblement National, formerly known as Front National. They changed name from National Front to National Gathering, probably to sound less right wing. Um, and the interview is very interesting because, first of all, a very long paragraph sets the scene and the journalists comment that they have not received coffee um, when at this meeting. And then there's a <laughs> there's an interview in which every line is painful. I'm pretty sure you've all read uh, interviews like that where you know that there's so much disdain between interviewer and interviewee and the two are trying to grapple throughout the interview with each other. Marine Le Pen, to give some background, has an approval rating of 48%. So France may see a right-wing president soonish. So that's the baseline. And the interview then goes on between issues about climate change, about Marine Le Pen's cats, um, wind energy. How, how many cats do we know? Apparently there are six of them. And she was asked by the by the journalists what what her alternative career may be. And she's, Marine Le Pen said she may breed cats instead. Um, particular focus is th in the interview on her, uh, Marine Le Pen's suggestion to ban religious symbols from the public, namely headscarf, but also kippah, um, which is very controversial naturally. Um, and in these questions where they debate that there's very clear journalists yet again don't really grasp what Marine Le Pen is aiming at and she's dissatisfied with the journalists asking all these kinds of nagging questions. So fairly interesting read. If anyone has their poster-sized Zeit still around, have a read. It's, it's remarkable because France has the biggest Jewish community uh, and, and a very powerful one at that uh, in Europe. Uh, and to, to say, okay, that uh, that the yarmulke, the kippah is going to go away uh, along with headscarf. And of course, yeah, I mean, all of this in line with this, of course, you know, you know, almost re-underlining of, uh, of of secularism is 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 quite remarkable in this period when we see, of course, self determination for communities, many other things. Uh, Christoph, um, when you look at the the coverage, how you're going to look at this France story moving forward? I think our listeners would be interested. Here you are running a foreign desk. Uh, and uh, when you sort of look at how this is, of course, also a very important neighbor to, to, to this country as well, how do you see your coverage unfolding? Because, of course, there are many hot topics, I think, within, of course, this elect upcoming election in France, which, of course, uh, impact Germany as much as they impact Switzerland is, and, and even jumping across the channel when we talk about right and left, polarization of society, all of these things. Yeah, I mean, if we are going to see a President Le Pen, uh, I'm a bit uh, afraid of the European Union. I mean, they might have the idea then to to uh, to leave the, the EU as well as, as, as the British. But uh, we focused uh, last week on the 200... Uh, death day of, of Napoleon and President Macron used this, this anniversary to, uh, to start his, his campaign and he definitely moved to the right side. Uh, he he uh, he was very fond of this uh, of, of Napoleon, even though he admitted some mistakes he did, the, the slavery, the reintroduction of slavery, and everything. But it's it's a it's a very strong signal that he focused so much on Napoleon, uh, and he he knows that if he wants to be re-elected, he has to win on the right side. 
And this 48% Marine Le Pen has at the moment is a very remarkable sign that <laughs> he has to do something. That's very difficult. He's, it will be very difficult for him to be re-elected. And he started this campaign this week. Okay, Benno, we're going to lighten the tone. I'm going to uh, have... <laughs> I'm going to have you tell our listeners about a story that did break in Germany in Bild Zeitung. It's been picked up here by by Blick uh, as well. It's it's a very important diplomatic and security story, of course, as well, <laughs> involving the king of the king of Thailand. Usually, I don't comment too much on the tabloids, um, whether it's Bild. Careful, or you may not be able to go on that holiday in Phuket. So, careful what you say. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, um, because it is an issue to talk about the Thai king, as we all know, particularly when Monocle talks to their Bangkok correspondent. Um, it's easily a crime, so I'll, I'll watch my tongue. But there was indeed the story that the Thai king may have a son in Switzerland. Um, he's Apparently he's hiding um, some kind of affair of his in a hotel in the Swiss mountains. And then this affair may have produced a son. I use may because it's really in the tabloids. So, so who knows about that? But certainly the Thai king is notorious for, first of all, his stays in the European Alps, but also for his, I guess, extravagant... Um, life. Yes, indeed. I was saying we've spotted uh, one of the government jets. Uh, I think they have a 737, well, they have a, a Boeing business jet anyway, which you seem to see at Cloton Airport in Zurich uh, a little a little bit uh, too often, maybe, give, given the times that we're in. Uh, Andrew's got a, an important story. Um, I think it involves uh, one Miss Paltrow. Uh, yeah. Do you fancy a, a Buster Paltrow? Because apparently this has been her kind of go-to drink of an evening during lockdown. Shockingly, this, the, the woman of, of clean living has admitted that she's been on the booze almost every single night since uh, lockdown began. Uh, Buster is the name of her grandfather. Uh, she's been hitting the whiskey bottle, although it turns out that the, the whiskey is at least made from quinoa. But apart from that, she's back on the booze. So it, it, it happens to us all, Tyler, so we can all feel good about the, the extra glass of nice white we had for, from uh, Chandra Kurt of an evening. Well, Andrew, you also you can add booze with with cruise as well, because I also read this week that she she wants to help revitalize the cruise industry uh, as well and get all of her her goop fans out to sea with her. So I was thinking about booking you a trip if you can't uh, make your way to, to Mallorca. Fancy it? Please, please don't. <laughs> and uh, just before we head back to London for the news, just very quickly, Christoph, you, you, you spotted a story about uh, the, the boom in uh, instrument sales, and that yes. musical instruments, that is, not, not weighing instruments or anything else. <laughs> a, nice, a nice side of the, of, of the pandemic. Uh, uh, they talked, uh, the Sonntagszeitung talked to the Music Hooger, the largest music instrument seller here in Zurich, and they had a big increase uh, in, in the sale of instruments, in particular guitars, but also digital pianos and classic pianos. So uh, lots of Swiss people, I suppose, are uh, using the, the guitar at home and singing country roads or something like that. But uh, it seems to be very popular. On the other, on the other side, uh, in Sonntagsblick, I read that the teachers are really worn out. They are suffer, suffer from mobbing by elder students and so on. And uh, they really uh, look forward to the end of everything, but maybe 
Some more music in the classrooms would help. Yes, and uh, maybe a bit of a, of a musical note when it comes to the news as well. Emma Nelson's back in London with the headlines. Thank you, Tyler. Officials in Afghanistan say at least 30 people have been killed and more than 50 others, including children, have been injured at a blast in a school in Kabul. The Scottish National Party leader Nicola Sturgeon has said it's the will of the country to have a second independence referendum after her party won elections to the Scottish Parliament. And lockdown has revealed a new habit, or rather an old one, cherished by the Swiss, that of hoarding cash. When the Swiss National Bank announced that old banknotes would no longer be legal tender from the end of April, there was a rush to change old notes for new and complaints that people hadn't been given enough notice. Around 40% of all Swiss banknotes circulating were of the old kind, with the majority being squirrelled away in houses in case of another pandemic or to avoid Switzerland's negative interest rates. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Thanks. So you should see Benno's pockets just bulging, <laughs> bulging with cash. We should add uh, listeners in case you get other ideas on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, Emma, we will catch up with you, I think, at the at the end uh, of the program. Uh, but it is uh, 10.31 in Zurich. It's also 10.31 uh, if you're listening in Copenhagen, where we're heading now, to see what the Danes are reading in one of our semi-regular features where we check in with a bookseller somewhere in the world. Uh, we're chatting to... Isabella Musavizade Smith. She is the owner and founder of Books in Company uh, in Copenhagen. Good morning. Uh, well, let's uh, let's start with uh, it's always good to have a weather check. Uh, we want to sort of you know frame uh, what the look might be in uh, in Copenhagen uh, this oh, morning. What uh, a good day to ask that question. The sun the sun is shining for once. Okay, this is this is good. It's not one of those days where the clouds are at a uh, hundred meters uh, above the you know? Tivoli. No, but you know what they say about Scandinavia. You just wait 10 minutes and it will change. In, so maybe in, within our call, it will change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe set up uh, for, for those who have not been uh, up to Copenhagen uh, recently. Uh, tell us, uh, set, the, set up the stall uh, for your bookstore. Uh, tell us a little bit uh, about uh, your setup, your customer. Uh, and, and let's get into, of course, what, what's flying off the shelves. So I have a uh, an in English language international bookshop in Copenhagen, and uh, I've been here for about 12 years. I started 12 years ago, and it's a real mix of my client, my customers are a real mix of Danes and non-Danes, and the shop is really from the beginning was always meant to be 50% books, 50% community hub, because that's what I brought back with me from the States when I moved back. And that's really what I, what I wanted to create. And that's what it's become. We, have, we pride ourselves on having a really well curated book. It's not a big shop, but it has, we have lots of titles and in different genres. And, uh, and, we just, uh, and we just love having, we have so many regulars now who come in and it's really partly coming in for a cup of coffee in the morning, having a chat about what's going on in the world, then picking up a book or a gift and that's how it goes along the day. Okay, yeah. so if, we, if we want to picture things, Isabella, uh, retail is, is fully humming again in, in a reasonably normal way in Copenhagen? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, it's been, uh, you know, each country has had its own pandemic experience. And ours has been that we've actually been open the whole time, uh, more or less, uh, just 
you know, trying to fit into the different uh, restrictions, which seem to change every week. Um, but we decided, decided really early on, like the, on the first day, that I was just going to stay open the whole time and just try to function within the restrictions because our community means so much to us. And I feel that we mean a lot to our community. And of course, we sell a product that's really nice to have during a pandemic uh, where you're stuck at home. So we changed things up right away and we uh, started to deliver books out on day one on bike, on foot, by car and make book pass packages for people and uh, people could contact us and things that we haven't we hadn't ever done before. So the pandemic for us has been actually also an impetus to try new things and things that I've been thinking about doing, but this was the push that I needed. And uh, so there's been a, it's been a struggle for a lot of people. And I think that for the shops that and bookshops also, but for any any uh, retail business that was new or young, it's been devastating. But for anyone who's been in the business for a while where you've been able to create a community, a sense of community and where people feel loyal to your business, it's uh, it's been, I mean, amazing to experience the community support um, and just we've we've also gained lots of new customers, but it's really especially been heartwarming to see just how much we've meant to people and how much books mean to people and uh, and having the conversation around books. And in our shop, it's also very much a conversation, a daily conversation on current affairs. How are you, how are they doing? How's the world doing? And I think that kind of connection has been vital for a lot of people. So even when you could just pick up at the door, we had people lining up to pick up at the door and have a little chat and pick up a coffee. So I think when you think about what physical retail brick and mortar means, I think the pandemic has been incredible in showing how much it means. I mean, it's it's been fantastic that we've been able to be online, that kids have been online, that you've been able to source whatever you needed online, but it's also shown um, just how much we need that human connection and that intimacy with each other. Um, and just reaching out and having a real conversation with someone either by phone or on email and talking about things that, you know, subjects that spring from books um, has been, has really been an eye opener for us, for sure. Isabella, as, uh, as of course, people uh, look towards their, their suitcases uh, and, uh, and mobilizing themselves uh, across uh, Europe, maybe we can kick off the, the, the season uh, of the summer reads uh, with, with you today. If we can look at maybe three things, maybe, uh, maybe something in English, but maybe by a Danish author uh, as well, uh, that come to mind uh, that you would like to recommend uh, to, to the Monocle uh, listenership around the world, uh, what, what titles come to mind? Absolutely. I mean, I would say we do only sell English language books, but one of the one of the titles that I've been really excited about, one of the big new uh, books, which is not a new book, but it's a new translation, the Copenhagen Trilogy by Tove Didleusen, um, is an amazing trilogy and uh, follows her life um, as one of the preeminent authors in, in Danish literature and uh, talks about her life in Copenhagen uh, growing up very poor and uh, and also just becoming an author and the struggles that she went through and it's I can really recommend it. It is, it's a it's beautifully written and it's a great insight into uh, to Denmark to Copenhagen, and to uh, a woman's uh, struggles become coming into her own um, in the 40s, 50s, 60s uh, in Denmark. It's an amazing book. Um, okay. And then I would say we have, I mean the. the 
the books that sell a lot just right now, uh, you know, top of mind are Empire of Pain, which of course is a nonfiction account of the Sackler dynasty and their role in the uh, opioid crisis in America. That's something that uh, is selling really well. And um, and then we have one of my favorites is the new Edmund Deval book to anyone who has read uh, the Hair with Amber Eyes, which is also one of my favorite books. Um, this is uh, Letters to Camondo, which is takes place in uh, it chronicles the story through through letters, uh, the story of a Jewish family in um, in Paris, and it's just beautiful and is uh, placed in this beautiful building in Rue de Monceau in Paris, which is also really worth a visit once Paris opens up again. Um, and I would say on the nonfiction, more nonfiction, I would say How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates has also been one of our big sellers. And one of my all-time favorites that I would say for summer reading, if you haven't read it yet, is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which is about two sisters growing up uh, in the U.S. Uh, in the 50s and 60s and um the, the whole question of being able to pass for black or pass for white and the choice to pass for white when you are black and what that does to you as a, a human being and how you go through life doing that. So those are my would be my top recommendations right now. Very good. And also you, uh, of course, sell magazines, uh, which we're very happy about. Uh, what's uh, What titles uh, are also doing well uh, if people want to uh, pick up a periodical? What are the Danes oh, buying? Very, very, I will start by saying very excited to have Conflict in our store and uh, to with Monocle. So that's really been great. The magazines we sell a lot of Gentlewoman is a really popular magazine with us. Arc Journal, which is a Danish uh, international in English, but uh, Danish... Uh, uh, interior magazine, which is gorgeous, beautiful. Um, suitcase for all of us who are longing to travel. Um, the Economist, we sell a lot of just because it really reflects our shop and the discussions. And if I were to point at a trend in magazines, I will really have to say that any interior magazines, I mean, a magazine like House and Garden, I mean, has been flying off the shelf through the pandemic. People have just been redecorating wishing they live differently, wishing their four walls look different. Um, and uh, so those are the magazines that uh, are great to take with you on a summer holiday and uh, have been doing well. And I will say with the interior, really looking forward to Monaco Book of Homes. Good. Well, I just, we saw first copies <laughs> last week. It, I, I, of course, I might say this, it looks very good. Uh, and we'll good. be getting it. There's, there's a big shipment coming to Zurich tomorrow. I'm sure it is heading your way. Um, and mm -hmm. Isabel, we should just uh, do a little bit of side business very quickly, uh, because uh, we were talking to uh, to Rene uh, Vanderkamp from uh, Athenaeum, of course, another great bookstore uh, in, in yep. Amsterdam. So we're looking at doing a book signing uh, there. And uh, of course, any excuse to get to Copenhagen. So um, we, yes. we, should, we, should, we shall talk after the program uh, and, and figure out what we can uh, what we can do uh, for oh, our, da that. our Dana yep. readers, Danish readership, mm -hmm. I should say. Yes. Uh, have a wonderful Sunday, uh, Isabella. Thank you very much. Musa you too. Thank Smith. you. Thanks, Isabella Musa Smith. There from Books and Company Copenhagen. We're heading to Tokyo right after this. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature, and more. 
It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. I appreciate that in 2020, some of the most brilliant art, most of it, grounds you in this moment and makes you confront it. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in <laughs> your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 20.00 London time here on Monocle 24 and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. back with Monocle on Sunday uh, with me, Tyler Brule. I'm also here with Christoph Munger and also our Benno Zog uh, is with us. And it's uh, just uh, gone 9.42 if you're listening in London, 10.42 here on the continent. It is 7.42 in Tokyo, where we are heading now to speak to our bureau chief there, Fiona Wilson. Good afternoon, Fiona. Hi, Tyler. Uh, I've been watching uh, the screens uh, yeah, in, in, in the back of our studio uh, set up here in, in Zurich. A lot of Tokyo uh, you know, flashing uh, you know, back and forth. Of course, a lot of Olympic stories, as we were saying at the top of the program as well. You know, Andrew's been talking about these, you know, the, the great move, uh, of course, of, of society and economies opening up. And, and you know, we're, we're in this back and forth. And I know there was a lot of correspondence uh, between all of us because we've got a big feature coming up. You and uh, our, our our colleague uh, Jun Toyofuku have been working on this massive 16-page feature uh, about the Olympics, uh, which will be part of our our June issue. Uh, maybe just um, you know bring us up to speed. It's almost like a little bit of a, a temperature check as to mood and and sentiment. Uh, have have you noticed any uptick, any more excitement on the part of the uh, the Japanese uh, population about these games uh, heading their way? And well, what what are we two months away? Under two months away now. I know. I can't believe it's so close now. I mean, it's so interesting doing that story. And what we did was we meant we went to meet a lot of people who are working behind the scenes. These are not officials. These are the people who are, you know, the people at Toyota, maybe making the robots or, you know, the, the people who, who made the torch. Uh, they're not really officials, frontline players. And it's really, really heartbreaking to see the years, literally years of work they've put into this and to see it all. I mean, it, you know, we don't know. It looks like it probably will go ahead, but the the mood is really, really cold now in the Olympics. Um, I don't know if you remember Kenji Utsunomiya. He was a, a lawyer who stood against Governor Koike to run Tokyo. She won, but he, he made quite a good impression and he just launched this petition um, last week, Stop the Olympics. And, you know, 300,000 people have signed up for this thing. So I would say sadly not an uptick and the the you know the situation with the virus is not good it all sounds like bad news sorry the virus isn't great we've had really bad numbers again today and the vaccination rollout is just glacial it's so slow it's agony to watch um i, I could be getting one by about uh, december of this year the way things are going so uh, yeah it's a real yeah it's a tough it's a tough one i have to say and i you know it was it was interesting doing the story with all this going on in the background and you realize they they're all aware of this very negative feeling about the olympics now so it's become quite a strange atmosphere um you know of course it can always turn around but um yeah very very difficult well, let's hope this uh, the June issue doesn't become uh, a collector's item for for all for all of the for all of the wrong wrong reasons. Fiona, at the top of the program, uh, you you teased us with a little story about um, a car being developed made of wood. 
I mean, I just thought this has got Tyler's name written all over it, this car. Um, I actually, I think in Switzerland, maybe you'd make one in Switzerland because some some students at a university in, in Mie Prefecture, where there's a lot of uh, beautiful Cypress, Hinoki Cypress, have come up with this amazing uh, electric car with the body made of Cypress wood. Um you know, and I thought, oh, really? It looks a little bit like a crate on wheels, so no marks for aesthetics. But um, it, you know, hugely, thought, hugely aerodynamic. Then <laughs> anything but. And I thought, I bet it goes about two kilometres an hour. But actually, it can go at fifty kilometres an hour, which is a quite terrifying prospect if you see this thing. Um, and on one charge, it can go for fifty kilometres. So it's not, you know, actually, technically, it's not a complete joke. But it was quite an interesting point to say, you know. It's a big discussion here. Japan has got more wood, domestic wood, than it knows what to do with. And I think a lot of people don't know that about Japan. It's massively forested. It's like two thirds forested. And, um, you know, they don't really know what to do with it or they can't cut it down. And this was an idea by these uh, students in an area which is famous for it's, it's a big Buddhist pilgrimage uh, route, Kumano Kodo, and um, they, there's a cultural centre there. So they, it was part of that, and they, they're, they're offering uh, test driving. I mean, I've got to go, haven't I, really? I've got to go and get into this thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, probably the queues are going to you know, be bigger and probably uh, they'll be better at processing than uh, the Japanese uh, health authorities with vaccines. Uh, yeah. Just, we, we don't have an official automotive correspondent, but if we did, it would be your colleague, Jin Toyofuku. He's got a few opinions, as we know, uh, about uh, vehicles, uh, any sort of judgment uh, by Jun on uh, on the Cypress uh, Hinoki mobile? <laughs> I think I'd be afraid to show him this vehicle. I, 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 he'd need to lie down. I mean, this is a man, you know, who's, who's spent a decade going around in the most beautiful vintage Mercedes. So, yeah, not really one for Jun, I have to say. But um, it's an interesting idea. I think I'll leave it there. Okay, so I guess as of this evening, Golden Week, uh, of course, which is you know traditionally the, the well the late winter or I should say probably you know spring um, mm. holiday week uh, has officially uh, wrapped up. I didn't see mm. that many photographs um, from from friends uh, and our colleagues uh, zipping around the country. I got a sense that a lot of people were just were were really staying put. But uh, what what is it meant, or, or is there anything to talk about in terms of domestic travel and what it's meant for the Japanese economy? Well, I mean, interesting. It is really a time usually when people travel like crazy. And we've had amazing weather here. You know, it's 28 degrees today. So, you know, so it should be a great time to be out and about. But what actually happened is that everybody I knew in Tokyo was staying put. And Governor Koike was, you know, coming out with her, you know, these very passive aggressive requests. Don't go anywhere, you know. So ev everyone was trying to do the right thing. But it turned out quite interestingly, a lot more people traveled this year than last year. So last year was a disaster for the railway companies, absolute disaster. And of course, even this year, it's nothing like 2019. But there were a lot more people on bullet trains, more people on cars. I was amazed to see uh, there was a an incredible tailback coming into Tokyo that stretched for 41 kilometers. So very glad I don't have a vintage Mercedes and was, um, wasn't stuck in that ridiculous queue. But um yeah, it seemed like more people were dying to get out and about this year. And uh, when you when you look at the impact then uh, on you know, centres where people were going, does that also mean that people were jumping flights to? I mean, if the weather's nice. Maybe you didn't need to go to Okinawa, but are people flying to uh, to to Okinawa and and elsewhere? Uh, because obviously they they you know this would also be a time that a lot of Japanese they would go golfing in in Thailand. Uh, they'd be heading off uh, elsewhere. So have other prefectures mm. with a few more palm trees uh, managed to benefit? 
Yeah, I heard, I did hear that Okinawa was was really busy. I mean, of course, not everyone's coming from Tokyo. You know, that's the thing. Of course, our our perspective is quite a Tokyo perspective. People are traveling from all over the place to go to Okinawa. Obviously, the weather is great there now. So yeah, I think a lot of people were going there. But you know, we were still in a state of emergency here in Tokyo, and now that's been extended to the end of May, and has also been extended to other prefectures. So. Fukuoka has now been roped in. So that's another place people were going to in Golden Week. That is now in a state of emergency. Um, so it, it's, a, you know, it's very alarming. I noticed yesterday 13 prefectures were, were I don't think it's a boast, had, you know, record breaking virus uh, figures. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, in a week or so as all this movement, What what's the result of all of this? Is it going to um, have an impact on numbers? I, it, it looks like it is already actually, certainly it is in Tokyo. Uh, Fiona, maybe we just uh, move on uh, quickly to, uh, yeah, I mean, an iconic building, uh, one that we've covered, um, and this is uh, the Capsule Tower. And, and there's been, you know, we, we know that anything from the early 70s, even from the 80s, things that we like are often not long for this world. We've, we've mounted campaigns to save buildings uh, on more than one occasion. Uh, what's what's going to happen to the Capsule Tower? Well, I think the first thing is we need to get a campaign going, quite frankly, because this really is an iconic building. I mean, that's such an overused thing, but it really is an iconic building. You know, 1972, Kisho Kurokawa, such an interesting moment for Japan when the cities were exploding. And a lot of these architects like Kurokawa are saying, how can cities really function with this many people? And his idea absolutely classic kind of early 70s i know let's build a tower and bolt on these capsules and when people want to move they can take the capsules with them of course what happened it was the only one that was built and nobody ever moved the capsules so it's really like an idea dipped in aspic and never changed and his idea was that you change the capsules they'd be repaired they've never been repaired and it just stands there in Shimbashi. I absolutely love that building and it's it's really been doomed for a while there are still people in there amazingly and I've been to have a look good look round they don't like people just they don't want people just nosing around but I did arrange with a, a man called Tatsuyuki Maida who's who's really trying to preserve the building and he's bought 11 capsules already uh there are 140 many just completely in a state of disrepair now but he's bought 11 but what's happened is that the, the he's now been sort of outvoted and it looks like it's going to be demolished um which is really unbelievable i think it's such an important building for anyone interested in japanese architecture if if this goes ahead it would start to be demolished next march so um yeah we need to get our campaigning hats on again uh, and tell me uh, do we know what the capsules are going for if uh, if you want to purchase one i wonder whether one would look nice on the the wilson balcony or or in the garden <laughs> I mean, if you could actually get your hands on one, obviously the majority owners who are dying to sell the building, they don't want you to buy them. So they're trying to stop that happening. I mean, they were, they were surprisingly cheap. I mean, you're in the tens of thousands of dollars. This is not like a, a an incredible property. They're very small. They're 10 square meters falling apart. You have to love early 70s Japanese metabolism. Um, <laughs> maybe a select group. I'm one of them. But, um, you know, it's not it's not like it, they were expensive to buy. Just people weren't buying them. And, and the cost of repair is going to be something spectacular. So what we need is some someone to swoop in and say this building is worth saving it's a it's an absolute landmark for tokyo it'd be really really sad and what they want to do is just tear it down and put a mixed-use building up um really no remnant of, of of what's an amazing kind of moment in in this explosion of urbanism in the 70s so it would be gone and there are hardly any metabolist buildings left some would say 
that's no bad thing because they were quite wacky. But I think this really, you know, is an important building. So I'm hoping somebody will see sense. Fiona, I can just tell you, Benno has uh, been looking like crazy. So we, you might also have to uh, see if you can support on getting one onto a, con- a container ship as well. Benno, can you get a 10 square? Absolutely. What would you do with a 10 square meter cap- capsule? Should Fiona put a bid in for you? Um, clearly, my balcony and all my garden are big are big enough for that. But to me, it look, the building looks like a mix of Lego and Soviet brutalism. And both sound lovely. So uh, I'm in. Count me in, please. Good. Music to my ears. Okay, we'll start putting the hat around and see what we can raise. (laughs) Fiona Wilson uh, in Tokyo. Very good uh, to chat to you. I'm sure we'll catch up uh, later uh, in the week. That was our Fiona Wilson uh, joining us uh, from our our bureau there. Uh, Just better going going back to to capsule size uh, ventures like that. It's it's interesting because over the years we've we've been trying to, uh, you know, we we tried to sort of save the original uh, Okura. We had a, you know, we had a a big global petition. Uh, I think we got 10,000 people uh, to sign up uh, to, to save it. Uh, do you think it's maybe sort of a, a role, you know, for maybe for, for a Switzerland, uh, you have like, uh, you know, you have, of course, Pro Helvetia, you've got uh, Présence Suisse, uh, of course, these these bodies which are trying to, you know, of course, promote good design, uh, to promote, uh, to do their little bit of soft power uh, dances around the world. Maybe a role for some um, ambassadors in Bern, do you think? <laughs> in a way, it is, because there's talk of tech ambassadors and so on. Why not international architecture or heritage ambassador? But I think we're very focused on the domestic market and doing a pretty interesting and good job at preserving um, whatever kind of buildings and cultural heritage there is and this very often and reminds me of the capsule hotel includes to um, a viewer very ugly buildings but were indicative of their time of their era of the 60s of brutalism of the 70s and so on and i think this mindset need to be maintained but i don't foresee this to be a new focus of swiss diplomacy <laughs> no maybe not no, 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 probably not yeah but it, 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 it happens very often that very ugly buildings become beautiful and also the other way around but sometimes um, that, that, that's remarkable i think maybe you have to involve unesco something like that you UN organization to to save uh, some heritage. They save quite a few things, so why not a building in Tokyo? Uh, Andrew uh, is joining us, uh, just uh, catching up for the, for the end of the end of the program. Uh, it, it's kind of been remarkable, I think, to to watch. You know, if we look back, even over the last sort of fourteen or fifteen years, uh, you know, the amount of buildings, as we we're saying to Fiona, that uh, that were there in those early pages um, of of the magazine that are no longer with us. Well, we, 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 we led that, a very nice campaign to try and keep the Akura in place. The interesting thing, I guess, is how many of these buildings do disappear, but they somehow extraordinarily re- retain key elements of them that then get repackaged into other buildings, but in a way that oddly kind of works. So with the Okura, we were certainly concerned about the, the, the disappearance of that amazing salon lounge when you arrive in the hotel, but it, it still exists uh, in, in a reborn version and in a way that people still love. So you hope that something will happen with these buildings as they begin to disappear. But, you know, it's it's something to do with the dynamic of that city that it makes it so successful is this ability to kind of draw a veil over things and pull them down and, and move on. And I guess that's also a bit why we love the city as well. When, when you go to Japan or when, when you go to Tokyo is this this mix and match process of putting up architecture. So, yes, it's sad to see these buildings go, but you have some faith often that something interesting will pop up in its place.
And you know, and often we've said when we see an economic dip, um, and I guess as we know things, you know, people talk about, of course, a, a pretty rapid bounce back. But nevertheless, uh, you know, this this could be a period as well, Andrew, that uh, maybe some great buildings are also saved, at least from the wrecking ball for a little while, as companies have to reforecast. And, and we've seen a lot of big construction projects, of course, push back, not just by months, but even years right now. Uh, so, so maybe it also gives a bit of a stay of execution, no? Yes, and I think also that you know there there is you know a global debate that's been you know finally honed in in recent years in in Japan because of the Olympics. You know that here, here there was a, a question mark about should you build new or should you reuse what you have, and I think it's been a, a, actually an interesting exercise for Japan Inc and for the world to watch that actually Japan has said actually we we built some great Olympic stadium many years ago why don't we see how we can reuse those instead of just putting up new and i think this reuse attitude to buildings will come to the fore and it is already in japan as well very good um andrew tuck uh, what's the main 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 topic for uh, for us uh, the the monocle look ahead for the week in 10 seconds or less uh, getting on the, 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 the Venice bus, as it were, although I, I understand that there may be a few people getting on the Venice plane from Zurich as well. Yeah, but, uh, the, <laughs> it, might, it might have some wings. If you start now, though, Andrew, on the Venice bus, then you might be able to catch the plane um, if, if you can make, <laughs> make, your, make your way here. Uh, Andrew Tuck in London. Exactly. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, ben Odzog, also great to see you. Christoph Munger. Uh, gentlemen, have a very uh, good week. Uh, and hopefully the weather's not going to stay with us, though, is it? It doesn't seem like it. Thank you. Uh, that's all for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Uh, big thanks, of course, uh, to Fiona Wilson uh, and also uh, to Isabella Musavizadeh-Smith, who is joining us from Copenhagen. Our producers, Emma Nelson and Marcus Hippie, studio managers, Desiree Benley and Nora Hall in London. I'm Tyler Brulé here in Zurich. Monocle on Sunday is back next week. Goodbye.